0: Yeah. Hey, this my eight hundred I've been persuaded, see mad. I see the Savior, I see his grace is amazing. I'm persevered to the end. I'm all in sound. He's irresistible. Yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. persuaded, he made it. Welcome to the All Truth is God's Truth program. Since God is our sovereign creator, all truth belongs to him. All truth is from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Therefore, the pursuit of truth must be by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. I'm your host, Jared Moore. So we've got four segments for you today. The first is called, If You Want to Fully Appreciate God's Love, You Must Learn to Equally Appreciate His Wrath. So we're going to examine the reality that if we do not understand God's wrath, we do not understand His love. The second segment is called, Love, Jonathan Edwards, and Pistol Pete. We're going to examine how loving how much God loves you is not the same as loving God. The third segment is called Pragmatic Love, A Warning to Husbands and Fathers. We're going to examine whether or not we truly love our spouses and our children or if we love them only when they benefit us. You know, true love is selfless. The fourth and final segment is called Discernment Without Love is a Clanging Symbol. We'll discuss how the discernment is loving and not hateful. You know, anything less is not true discernment, but a perversion of the scriptural definition of discernment. I hope you enjoy the show. Segment today that we're looking at is that if we're going to appreciate God's love, we must learn to equally appreciate His wrath. In an essay titled The Wrath of God, written by D.A. Carson, now this was written for Bruce McCormick's book. Engaging the Doctrine of God, Contemporary Protestant Perspectives. This is what D.A. Carson argues. Rightly integrated into Christian theology, the wrath of God enhances our grasp of God's love. It does not diminish it. The point has been made, but not often more intelligently than by J. Gresham Machin, in a passage I stumbled across recently. Now, Carson quotes Machen says It is a strange thing that when men talk about the love of God, they show by every word that they utter that they have no conception at all of the depths of God's love. If you want to find an instance of true gratitude for the infinite grace of God, do not go to those who think of God's love as something that costs nothing, but go rather to those who in agony of soul have faced the awful fact of the guilt of sin and then have come to know with a trembling wonder that the miracle of all miracles has been accomplished and that the eternal Son has died in their stead, quote. The reality that uh, Carson talks about and Machen discusses is clearly st- seen in the story about Lazarus and the rich man. Now, I believe this is a factual story. I don't see it as a parable, but as a real story that happened in history. Je- Jesus details this in Luke 16, 19 through 31. This is what he says... There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Notice that Abraham points to the rich man enjoying good things on earth, but now he is in torment in Hades. God's grace on earth makes hell that much more unbearable due to being compared with the common grace previously received on earth. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, according to Matthew 5:45. Also notice that the rich man can see Lazarus being comforted. This too magnifies the rich man's torment. Furthermore, Lazarus's joy is magnified by his previous suffering on earth and the current suffering of the rich man. As Lazarus and Abraham, for that matter, peer into Hades, they are forever reminded of God's wonderful grace and justice. The rich man's suffering at the hands of a holy, just, and wrathful God magnifies the grace experienced by Abraham and Lazarus. For if it wasn't for God's love freely poured out on us, we would justly suffer under God's wrath in a sinner's hell for all eternity. So we need to remember this reality the next time we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Moreover, this truth answers the terrible question concerning if, if my family members are in hell, How will I enjoy heaven? And the answer is that we'll thank God for his wonderful justice in rightly judging our family members. And we'll praise him for his wonderful love, grace, and mercy poured out on us and all unbelievers who've repented and believed. This should greatly motivate us to take the gospel to our unbelieving family members now. We weep for their souls and the rest of those who are lost today. But in eternity, we shall weep no more. We will worship God not only for His love, but also for His wrath and justice. I want you to consider a moment Isaiah sixty six twenty two through twenty five and consider what God says here in His Word. It's very interesting. Beginning in verse number twenty two of Isaiah sixty six for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me declares the Lord. Now see that statement right there sounds wonderful. I mean it sounds awesome to think of all flesh coming and worshiping the Lord, but then God ends this book with this statement and they shall go out, so those who come and worship him, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh and that's how he ends the book. It's pretty terrifying. You know, God's wrath towards his enemies and our enemies as well, since his enemies are our enemies, it will magnify God's love for his people forevermore. In other words, God's wrath should not offend us. If God's wrath offends us, it's really God's holiness that offends us. And so if you really want to appreciate God's love, you've got to learn to appreciate His wrath because His wrath magnifies His love. His wrath means that since we're not going to experience, since believers aren't going to experience God's eternal righteous, holy, condemnation, it means that it's only because of God's love. It's only because of God's free choice to love us. And I say free choice because there's nothing in man that requires God to save us. There's nothing in God that requires God to save us. I mean, he could have sent everyone to hell and been perfectly just. He was free to do that. I mean, that, that's what he that's what he does with the fallen angels. You know, the fallen angels have no savior. They have no redeemer. And we know that the end for the fallen angels is eternal righteous torment in eventually the lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. And so God wasn't required to save sinners. He wasn't required to save because he he did not even attempt to save the fallen angel, based on what we learn, understand in Scripture. I mean, Jesus is fully man and fully God, but he's not fully angel. So the angels have no redeemer. They have no way of salvation, no possible way of salvation because God has not provided one. And so that means that God was not required in order to be loved. God is not required to pour out that love on others. And so it makes salvation that much more amazing that in God saving man and pursuing us and literally coming and fulfill all the requirements. You know, God became man and fulfilled all that he required of us, but then died as if he was guilty and then rose from the dead, conquering death and promising that all those who repent and believe in God the Son incarnate, in Jesus Christ, will be saved forever. I mean, God freely chose to love us and pour out His grace upon us. It's so amazing. But if we'll uh, we'll understand His wrath, we'll have an even greater and more biblical appreciation for God's love as well. We've come to our second segment. Love, Jonathan Edwards and Pistol Pete. You know, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and all our strength. Jonathan Edwards said, Hypocrites first rejoice that they are made so much of by God, and then on that ground he seems, in a sort, lovely to them. So we need to think through what it looks like to actually love God and to love others. 1 Corinthians thirteen four says, Love does not boast. Sometimes Christians live like love is defined as, I love how much you love me. Therefore, when a Christian is not feeling loved by a spouse, a friend, or a fellow Christian, he or she justifies his or her lack of love for the person because his or her love was selfish to begin with. He or she did not love the other person. He or she only loved the person's love for him or her. In a similar manner, so-called Christians often love God in this way. They love how much God loves them. But the moment he shows them their sin or or he lets something bad happen to them, they reveal that they really only loved themselves. They only loved how much God loved them, believing He loves them more than He loves Himself. And when they thought He didn't love them due to the bad thing that happened to them, they revealed that they never loved God to begin with. One cannot boast in oneself as more lovely than God and truly love God at the same time. You know, love does not boast. It exalts God above oneself, and it exalts others above oneself. Remember that Jesus said the two greatest commandments are are to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Matthew 22, 37-39. You know, Jesus lived out these commandments perfectly. When in the garden of Gethsemane, nearing his betrayal and death due to love for God and his neighbors, he prayed, "My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will." Matthew 26:39. Those that truly love God are willing to prosper and perish for His glory, because they love God for who He is, not for what He gives them. In order to truly love, to not boast or brag, we must understand who God is and who we are. We must admit that we are not God, that we are not comparable to him. We are ever dependent upon God. He is not dependent on us. Our worth comes from God. His worth does not come from us. He is God, and we are his creatures. He's the creator. We're the creature. In order to truly love God, we must submit to who God is and who he tells us we are. It's not enough to know or to say that we believe God is greater, God is holy, God is love, etc. We must live in such a way that communicates our submission to these realities. If we believe God is God and we're not, you know, we'll live like it. Consider the testimony of Pistol Pete Maravich. He was a professional basketball player. He was six foot five, a guard from 1970 to 1980. He played college basketball at Louisiana State University, and in his four years there, he averaged 44 points a game. Now, this was even before the three-point line was, was placed in, in basketball, and his college average is considered unbreakable today. Maravich had a good pro career, but he was forced to leave the game eventually due to a knee injury. When he left the spotlight, he said he became severely depressed And lived under severe depression for two years. He was no longer exalted by others, but then he got saved. He became an evangelical Christian. A few years before his death, this is what he said, I want to be remembered as a Christian, a person that serves Jesus to the utmost, not as a basketball player. He died at age 40 after a pickup game at a church. It turned out that he was born missing a left coronary artery. In his heart, he had flown to California to tape a segment for Focus on the Family. James Dobson was there playing in the pickup game with Merovich. Dobson was asking him questions as he shot baskets, but then Merovich suddenly dropped and he died in James Dobson's arms. You know, praise God that Merovich quit boasting in himself as the best college basketball player of all time. Praise God that Maravich fully loved God. He he finally understood who God was and who he was, and he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ to save him. He finally understood that in order to love God, one must love God more than one loves oneself. And when one loves God, he or she is willing to prosper and perish so long as God is glorified. And so, listener, I have this question for you. Do you love God and your neighbors? Or do you really boast in yourself, meaning that you merely love how much God and your neighbors love you? Loving how much God loves you is not the same as loving God. May we love God for who He is and what He has done for us, instead of merely loving Him for what He gives us. God is worthy of love, whether we prosper or perish. Let's dive into our third segment. Now, this is a note to husbands and fathers to beware pragmatic love. Pragmatic love is the type of love a person practices based on what have you done for me lately, a what have you done for me lately mentality. Pragmatic love has an ultimate concern for self and little concern for other people. When pragmatic love is practiced, the recipient of this love is reduced to an object you know, Christian husbands and or fathers, beware lest you find that your love for your spouse and or your children are solely based on how much they benefit you. So here's a couple examples just from my own life. You know, we have four children, and during pregnancy at times, the marriage bed may be less active than normal. Also, once the baby is born, for the sake of the mother's health, doctors strongly recommend that the marriage bed cease for at least six weeks. Serious medical issues may result. Otherwise, and the reality is that a husband's love for his wife should not hinge on her sexual availability, but on the reality that she is your bride. You are her husband, and God's word is true. You know Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through thirty-nine, Ephesians twenty-five. We live in a me-centered culture, especially concerning sexuality. I mean, the dogmatic, um, the dogmatic mantra. ...of the sexual revolution is me, 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 me. You know, our God, on the other hand, is in need of nothing. Yet he has freely chosen to love us, not because we benefit him, but because he chose to pour out his love on us. He is not in this relationship with us because his beloved is so lovable. On the contrary... He is in this relationship with his church because he has committed himself to his bride, according to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave up his life for his bride. And so, husbands, you and I must be willing to bleed for our brides as well. This love is the antithesis of pragmatic love. It's the opposite. We love based on Christ's example, not based on whether or not our wives are are meeting our needs, whether sexually or emotionally. In other words, we man up in the marriage by dying to self. Now consider another example. You know, I have four children and um my fourth child is three weeks old or three three years old and um he is a uh he's a ball of fun but he's also the most stubborn child that we've had and he's very strong-willed and so he throws fits a lot he's in a bad mood a lot and um because he is so strong-willed he rebels a lot um he's been harder uh, to discipline and harder. Um, I mean, if if you have pragmatic love for this type of child, you're not going to love him. And so I have to love him because he's my child. Because he And what I'm saying is when he's unlovable, there are times when he's unlovable, when it's 4 o'clock in the morning and gets up out of bed and comes in our bedroom and refuses to go to sleep and wants to keep us up. And there's numerous times like that and he just wants to rebel. And, you know, punishment doesn't really do a whole lot for him. And so we're, we're having to work through how how to properly love him and discipline him be godly parents um but the danger is that when he's not cute sweet cuddly when he's hateful when he's mean um you know I, I can't stop loving him just because he doesn't benefit me on the contrary i'm supposed to love him because he's my son and that's why i must love i must raise him up according to the word of god not because he benefits me or cuz he's some extension of myself but because I've purposed in my heart to love him because my heavenly Father loves me, especially when I'm unlovable, and he's proven this by giving his only son for me. And so I want to encourage you if you have if you have children um who may be rebelling regardless of age. Uh, whether they're teenagers or even young adults or regardless what age, that you would pursue to love not based on them benefiting you or because they do everything pleasing to you, but simply because you've purposed in your heart to love your children the way that your Heavenly Father loves you. So in conclusion, I want you to consider the strained and or broken relationships in your life, listener. Are these relationships strained or broken because you're loving these people in a pragmatic way? Because you're loving them based on a, what have you done for me lately? Also consider the various times that you get angry at your spouse, your children, your friends, church members. Is your anger righteous? Or are you easily angered because you're loving your neighbor pragmatically? When these people are not benefiting you, so think of when they're not meeting your needs, do you get angry? Remember to look to God as your example. You are not meeting His needs, for He has none, according to Acts seventeen twenty-four through twenty-five. I mean, He's, He's God; He's in need of nothing. Yet He has chosen to love you, regardless how unlovable you are. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves this evil world and everyone in it, not based on us but on His choice to love. And if you're a Christian, He's chosen to love you intimately and graciously through the finished work of His Son. And God commands us to love others like He loves us. final segment of today's show deals with trading discernment and love. And the reality is that if you are not exercising discernment in a loving way, then you're not exercising biblical Discernment. As Christians, we often deceive ourselves into thinking we love others when, in reality, we have redefined the love. Christians often adopt the myth that love is less important than miraculous spiritual gifts, deep doctrine, or sacrifice. According to 1 Corinthians thirteen one through 3 The internet and social media have tempted Christians to say things that may be true in unloving ways towards those they disagree with. In the name of defending the right use of miraculous spiritual gifts, deep doctrine, faith, or sacrifices, Christians argue without love, as if being discerning is greater than exercising love. Yet the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 1 3 said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Trading an incorrect understanding, an improper use. Of miraculous spiritual gifts, deep doctrine, faith, or sacrifice for an unloving, correct view and proper use of miraculous spiritual gifts, deep doctrine, faith, or sacrifice is merely trading one sin for another. And Paul argues that it is worse to lack biblical love than it is to lack the correct understanding or proper use of these other gifts of the Spirit. In other words, to summarize Paul, The right use of the gifts of tongues and prophecy become poisoned in the hands of unloving Christians. The correct understanding of deep biblical doctrine becomes poisoned in the hands of unloving Christians. The right use of the gift of faith becomes poisoned in the hands of unloving Christians. The sacrifice of one's own life for the sake of God, Christ, and the gospel becomes poisoned in the hands of unloving Christians. Consider John Huss, a pre-Reformation reformer, as an example. As he was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church for believing and teaching that Christ alone is the head of the church, he said, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies." He then recited the Psalms as the flames overcame him. You know, he followed Christ's example, for Christ prayed for his enemies even as they nailed him to the cross. According to Luke 23:34. neither Christ nor John Huss traded recanting for unloving sacrifice. Instead, they traded recanting for loving sacrifice of their own lives. To trade love for discernment is not discernment something less than discernment. Jesus Christ lived this reality par excellence, and John Huss, in the power of the Holy Spirit, followed his Savior's example. And the question is if we will follow the Savior's example as well. You know, if you're over a discernment ministry where you seek out things to warn Christians about and to correct false teaching, I want to encourage you, make sure that not only you love the church, but that you love those that you're interacting with and you're accurately representing them. If you're having to use logical fallacies to make your case against these false teachers, then you're using a discernment that is unloving. It's not biblical discernment. It may be a worldly discernment, but it's not a biblical discernment. Let us be not only discerning, but loving as well, especially loving. All Truth is God's Truth is a bi-weekly podcast written and produced by me, jared moore if you enjoyed the podcast please leave a five-star review also if you enjoyed the show you want to encourage me to keep at it you want to buy me a cup of coffee you can donate on my website Jaredmoore.exaltchrist.com. you can also find me on social media on Twitter at Jared H. Moore or on my website or on Facebook at all truth is God's truth. Until next time, enjoy God and His grace by taking all truth and connecting it back to its rightful owner by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. I've been persuaded united. I see the Savior, I see his grace is amazing. I'm persevering to the end. I'm all in. to be a the am